Hello and welcome to Stories from Another Day, a Collingwood Museum podcast. I'm your host, Ken Mahar, and together we're on a journey to uncover the stories of the people and the events that make our town of Collingwood into the amazing place it is today. This is season number three, episode number four, and today's story is The Dumbbells. It's a cold and wet December afternoon, but the servicemen hardly feel it. Their hearts and minds are far away as they stand enraptured by the sights and the sounds on the makeshift stage in front of them. A simple curtain with two openings frame a couple on opposite sides of the stage. One is a serviceman, like them. The other is his girl from home, Marjorie. She sings into a telephone, and he, in the trenches, stares off into the distance. They sing across the implied miles of their love and their longing for each other. As a song alternates between the two, the fact that Marjorie is also played by a serviceman is quickly forgotten as their words burrow deep into every heart within earshot. When the two step out of their curtain frames and meet each other in the middle of the stage to sing in harmony, more than a few of the men can be seen with hands brushing across their eyes. Yet not one of them there would judge anyone else. Life on the front lines is hard at the best of times. And as the holidays approach, well, what wouldn't any one of them give for a moment to be with their own loved ones. The last strains of the love song fade into the distant sound of the gunfire from just over the ridge, but before the men can fully applaud, the curtains have swung back and there stands a man dressed in a long Prince Albert coat, a plastered-down wig with a center part, and a sanctimonious look. He stands behind a worn-out pulpit, and as he folds his hands piously in his deep, ominous voice, he announces, My sermon is be ye prepared, for no man knoweth when inspection cometh. What follows is a skit full of references to life in the barracks, to stolen blankets and other common soldier shenanigans. Almost as if it were planned, several of the reverend's key fiery statements are punctuated by the sounds of fighting in the distance, including a faraway explosion going off almost exactly as the man's fists pound the pulpit. Soon every eye is dry and more than a few are howling with laughter. But just as the preacher finishes his fire and brimstone sermon with a wink and an odd, the laughter of the crowd is cut short, as with a whistling shriek, a German artillery shell flies right across the front of the stage. It lands with a spray of wet dirt and a sickening thump, but by then most of the men are already on the ground covering what they can. The preacher has ducked behind the pulpit, and a deathly silence envelops the gathering. After a couple of quiet moments, 
where no one even dares to breathe, an officer motions to a group of men who cautiously approach the unexploded ordinance. After a few tense minutes, they signal that it's safe. And with barely a moment of hesitation, the man on stage behind an old beat-up piano begins playing an upbeat song. A little haltingly at first, but soon it's in full swing and two new performers have come on stage with a ribald song and a dance number to draw every eye back to the show, every smile back to their merriment. Oh, the war would get their attention soon enough. But for now, the show would go on. Such, you see, was life for the World War I comedy troupe known as the Dumbbells. In the midst of terrible conflict, they brought joy and cheer and a much-needed distraction from the harsh reality of life and death along the front line an all-male musical review in the style of classic vaudeville acts. The group began with Merton and Al Plunkett, brothers from Aurelia, Jack Eyre, a pianist and musical director, Elmer A. Belding, Ted Charters, Alan Murray, and Jack McLaren. The original members were all pulled out of the battlefield. Now, the following information is drawn chiefly from the Canadian Expeditionary Force Research Group, from the Canadian Encyclopedia and Canadian Theatre Encyclopedia. As always, the links to these and other sources are in the show notes, and I encourage every one of you to read them as well. The pictures alone are worth your time. Well, the first show for the Dumbbells, performed in August of 1917, would prove their worth. Starting on a makeshift stage of packing boxes, the soldier audience was not particularly looking forward to the show and actually threw things at the stage. However, it wasn't long until even they had been won over. Shortly after that show, the cast would increase to 16 members. The name Dumbbells derived from the 3rd Division's own insignia, a crossed red dumbbells signifying strength. Now, of course, Merton's comedic troupe spelled dumbbell with only one B instead of two, a spelling error, they said, allegedly, a dumb mistake, but then that was all part of the joke, wasn't it? The dumbbells were only one troupe out of 30 to 40 other comedy musical troupes that entertained the soldiery in France. The troupe reveled in satire, performing sketches and comic songs, dances and female impersonations, all with improvised stages, sets, lighting, and costumes. And they did so wherever the troops were. This meant the dumbbells were constantly on the move, including to the front lines and the trenches. Among the properties and the equipment they took with them was a singular upright piano that had seen better days. At each stop, a few strong men would be assigned to tote the piano up onto whatever stage they had managed to cobble together. A resourceful group 
the dumbbells picked up and made what scenery and props they could, using horses' tails and ropes for wigs, bits of cowhide for beards and mustaches. In areas where there were no buildings to perform in, they'd set up seats on the side of a hill and give an outdoor show. Often, as we just heard, their performances could be interrupted by enemy action. As Albert Plunkett once remarked, some of the men we entertained at five o'clock were dead at 7.30. When the fighting got too close or tough, the dumbbells doubled as stretcher bearers. At the onset of their career, the entertainers were expected to return to active duty between the performances, but after so capably proving their comedic worth, they were quickly considered vital to the morale of the Canadian troops and made full-time entertainers. And here I don't think it's possible to overstate just how big a hit they were with the troops, writing humorous skits on everyday events in the soldiers' lives, poking fun at military discipline and the hardships of trench warfare. The orderly room, the sick parade, muddy trenches, the commanding officer's headquarters, no subject was immune from the dumbbells' saucy and irreverent interpretations. The dumbbells were allowed to make fun of almost everything, though not everything, Jason Wilson said in an interview with CBC's Deanna Sumanak. Wilson is a Toronto musician who also authored a book on the dumbbells. They were able to make fun of death. They were able to make fun of the war itself. Indeed, generals turned a deaf ear to the humorous mocking of the officers and everyday army life, recognizing these evening showcases were essential to lifting morale among their troops. An example of that trademark absurdity was a real estate sketch by McLaren in which he attempts to sell property to another soldier in no man's land, pointing out the advantages of on-site water and gas. As Plunkett himself would describe his vision, make him cry one minute and laugh the next, and you've got him. The show was clean, fast, filled with ingredients that never missed with soldiers or audiences anywhere. What Merton Plunkett would call sentiment and hokum. But that sentimental hokum was a smash. There was no doubt the Dumbbells concert party were good under the rough-and-tumble conditions of the trenches. But how would they go over in a regular theater? The answer to that question would come in the fall of 1918, when the troupe was on a two-week leave in London. One of the city's biggest vaudeville houses, the Coliseum, initially wanted nothing to do with another soldier's review. But, after a few days, when they heard of the effect the dumbbells were having on London audiences in a smaller venue that did welcome them, 
the dumbbells were offered to play the Colosseum for an additional four triumphant weeks. Mr. Johns, the manager, canceled all of his vaudeville acts and put the dumbbells on ahead of the feature attraction at that time, the famous Diegolev Ballet out of Russia. But the Londoners cheered the dumbbells concert party so long and so heartily that after just a couple of nights, the ballet manager himself demanded that his ballet be allowed to precede the soldier's show instead of following it. Their good press followed the dumbbells so that toward the end of the war, in fact, just a day after armistice, the dumbbells now in Mons, Belgium, held a production of Gilbert and Sullivan's HMS Pinafore. This was the troupe's first chance in a legitimate theatrical show, and they gave it all they had. Real, honest-to-goodness costumes, rented just for the occasion, and that along with a 50-piece RCA band alongside, the show would run for 32 days, two shows a day, with a battalion crowding in for each and every show. The musical was even performed for King Albert of Belgium himself, who awarded Captain Plunkett with a medal to recognize the group's support of the troops. Upon their return to Canada in 1919, Merton Plunkett would reform the Dumbbells concert party as a vaudeville troupe. Vaudeville acts were still very popular at the time. Here in Collingwood, the Lyric Theatre made their bread and butter off of the many well-known touring minstrel and vaudeville shows, favoring them over the new motion pictures beginning to pop up. But both movies and vaudeville would outlast the Lyric Theatre when well, that is a story for another day. On this day, we're interested in the dumbbells. As following the war, they would complete 12 cross-Canada tours over the next 13 years. In October of 1919, they opened at the Grand Opera House in London, Ontario, with a review titled Biff Bing Bang which was then performed at the Grand Theatre in Toronto for 16 weeks. In May of 1921, a revised Biff Bing Bang opened at the Ambassador Theatre in New York, making it the very first Canadian musical review to ever appear on Broadway. It would run there on Broadway for about 12 weeks, and John Eyre, in his time with it, became the very first Canadian to conduct an orchestra on Broadway. Similarly, from that same review, Al Plunkett was given a job offer from Al Jolson. He turned it down. The success of their tours and the popularity of their music across Canada resulted in many of their patriotic songs being published. The sheet music to their theme song, airs The Dumbbell Rag, sold more than 10,000 copies alone 
the group would go on to record some 27 separate 78s for HMV, of which some were reissued as late as 1977 on the LP The Original Dumbbells. At their peak, the Dumbbells made national stars of the crooner Al Plunkett, of Ross Hamilton, and the comic singer Red Newman. As Wilson, who wrote the book on the Dumbbells, again said in that CBC interview, people who had lived through the First World War, and then so quickly on its heels the influenza pandemic, and then the Second World War, well, they needed something a little more cynical at times, a humor that spoke to the absurdity of it all. And I think the absurdity is what distinguishes the dumbbells from those that had come before. As a testament to their legacy, it's recognized that their particular brand of black humor and biting satire was one of the key inspirations behind another famous comedy troupe, Monty Python's Flying Circus. And closer to home, the Dumbbells also went on to directly influence other Canadian comedy acts like Wayne and Schuster and later groups like Kids in the Hall. Following the Second World War, Merton Plunkett, the impresario of the Dumbbells, would retire here to Collingwood with his wife, Lila Taylor. They would live here on Minnesota Street until he passed away at the age of 78, just two days before Christmas, 1966. Red Newman, one of the earliest members of the troupe, who made $300 a week while on tour with the Dumbbells, he saved his money and used it to purchase a hotel in neighboring Wasaga Beach. Over the years, the Dumbbells would reunite for concerts on a few occasions, including a performance at Massey Hall in Toronto in 1955. Various members would give interviews and reminisce of their time in the trenches and in the spotlights. But the draw of their particular brand of comedy and the tastes of our culture have since parted ways. There are a number of reasons why you don't see more vaudeville acts anymore. But the real gift the Dumbbells brought wasn't just the joy and the laughter they gave to those men and women serving in terrible conditions, in lonely and difficult times, far away from home and loved ones. No, their gift is nothing less than the reminder that joy is never dependent upon your circumstances. And in a time when more and more people are finding themselves struggling, that reminder is a welcome gift indeed. Laughter has always been the best of medicines. And if happiness can be had, even on the front line, it's not so far away from even the most hurting people now.
song, a ridiculous wig, the ability to laugh at ourselves and the absurdities of this life, might just be the very best present we could give to ourselves and to our loved ones this holiday season. Before I go any further, I just wanted to recognize Lori King in her performance of The Dumbbell Rag, which you heard in the episode. In the show notes, I've posted the link so you can go to her YouTube channel and hear the whole song for yourself. In the spirit of holiday greetings and Thanksgiving, I would just like to take a moment to say to all who continue to give us feedback and story ideas, thank you so much. You have our deepest appreciation. And to each of you, the listeners, for giving us the opportunity to share these stories with you each month, thank you. It is a gift for me to be able to share this journey with you all. And on another personal note, I would also like to give a special thanks to those who continue to help behind the scenes to make this podcast a reality. To all the staff at the museum, especially my very patient editor, Lindsay, my thanks to you all. And if you would like to meet this lovely Collingwood Museum crew in person, Both they and a wonderful selection of gift shop items will be outside of the town hall on December the 8th and December the 15th from 5 till 8 in the evening as part of the Collingwood Downtown BIA Christmas Market. Drop by and say hi and maybe pick up some last-minute gifts for the history fans in your family. But, if you prefer to do your shopping in the comfortable indoors, and no one here would blame you, the full museum gift shop is well-stocked and available for browsing at all times during our regular hours of operation. You can find out more by going to our website or our Facebook page. And that, dear listeners, is about all the time that we have for today. From everyone at the Collingwood Museum, we wish you and your family a warm and joyful holiday season. May it be full of laughter and happiness wherever and however you find it. We'll be back bright and early in the new year, and we hope you'll join us then for more stories from another day.